0: Well, let me say something that I've not said in a good long while now, but let's open our Bibles this morning to the book of Revelation. It seems like that our study in the book kind of gets interrupted and that's okay because what we've been trying to do is to deal with the coronavirus and what's happening in the world and address these things from a biblical perspective. And I think we have at least tried to cover that as thoroughly as we can. And so this morning, I think we are ready to come back to our study Uh, in the book of Revelation and I look forward to us picking up here today and for the next several weeks uh, studying through this book. We've come now to one of the greatest parts of the entire book, if not the greatest part. Next Sunday morning, we'll be studying the Battle of Armageddon, and then we'll just go from there. But in Revelation today, we're going to be in chapter number 19, and we're going to be studying something called the Marriage Supper of the Lamb, or sometimes just referred to as the Marriage of the Lamb. It's talking about what you and I will experience one day in heaven, as soon as we arrive there, or at least shortly after we arrive there. Now, we know that we are living in the last days. The Apostle Paul told us in 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 1 that we're living in the last days. It's interesting, about 30 years after Paul wrote that, the Apostle John in 1 John chapter 2 in verse 18, he said it this way. He said, we're living in the last hour. It's not just the last days, it's the last hour. Well, think about this. If it was the last hour 2,000 years ago, then that must certainly mean we are in the last minutes now. And we know that at any moment, the rapture of the church could take place. Now we read about the rapture in 1st Thessalonians chapter 4 verses 13 through 18. That is the event that is described as one of these days Jesus is going to emerge from heaven and there's going to be a shout and there's going to be the voice of the archangel, and there's going to be the trumpet of God, and all of us who have been saved are going to be caught up, and we're going to meet the Lord in the air, and he will take us into heaven. Now, I know I just mentioned Revelation chapter 19. That's where we're going to be today, but let's go back to Revelation chapters Two and three. Let me just show you, kind of, since we've been out of Revelation for a while, let me just kind of give you the big picture here. In Revelation chapter two and three, we read about the specific messages that Jesus had for seven specific churches that were on the earth at this time. But the message that Jesus had for these churches still applies to us today. So chapters 2 and 3 of Revelation are Jesus's word to the churches. Well now go to chapter 4 and look in verse number 1 because the apostle John is having this vision and John said, "After these things I looked and behold a door standing open in heaven and the first Voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me, saying, Come up here, and I will show you things which must take place after this. So in Revelation chapter 4 and verse 1, in his vision, John is taken to heaven, and he is seeing what happens during the remainder of this book from there. And so it's interesting, after Revelation 4:1, we don't find any reference. Uh, to the church until the very end of the book of the Revelation, because after John is taken to heaven, this is symbolic of Christians how we will be taken to heaven. We read beginning in chapter number six, in in chapter four and five. By the way, it's just uh, the vision that John had of what's going on in heaven, and we dealt with that several months ago uh, about all the worship and praise that is going on in heaven. Now. Find chapter 6 in Revelation, and I just want you to notice something. From chapter 6 through chapter 18, we read about the period of great tribulation that will come upon this earth after the rapture of the church, and we have studied that thoroughly. In fact, in our study of the Great Tribulation, we looked at, we, I had 17 different sermons on the Tribulation. And you probably thought it would never end, and I, I did too. And I was glad when that ended. But just take your Bible and turn the pages. Chapters 6 through 18 is all about the Great Tribulation. Here we read about the Antichrist and the Mark of the Beast and all those things that we have thought about. And so the majority of Revelation is talking about a period of time that will one day come upon this earth, that if you're saved, you will not even be a part of. And yet God's giving this information to us in his word to warn those who are not saved that they need to get right with God and also to motivate those, who are, those of us who are saved that we would do everything we can Uh, with our family members and friends, to invite them to church, to tell them about the Lord, and to lead them to Christ so that they can miss this terrible period on the earth. Now, it's interesting. While all this is happening on the earth, the great tribulation for seven years, we as Christians will be in heaven. And so, the question then is, what will we be doing when we get to heaven. While the tribulation is going on on the earth, what will we be doing in heaven? And you say, well, John, while we're in heaven, we're going to be worshiping God. And that's true. You say, we're going to be reunited with our loved ones. And that's absolutely true. You say, we're going to be in the physical presence of Jesus Christ and in our new resurrected bodies. That's true too. But did you know, my, from my understanding of the entire scripture, One of the first things that will happen to us when we first get to heaven after the rapture of the church is that we will experience what is known as the judgment seat of Christ. That is, we will be judged for the way we have lived our lives and we will be rewarded if we have been found faithful in God's eyes. The judgment seat of Christ is not a judgment on sin. All of our sins were judged When Jesus Christ died on that cross, he was punished for our sins. And so I'm thankful, and I know you are too, that when we stand before Jesus at the judgment seat of Christ, he's not going to bring up every sin that we have ever committed. That would be horrible. Those sins have been forgiven and forgotten. And God said he won't even remember those sins anymore. They're cast behind God's back, it says in the Bible. They've been buried in the depths of the sea, we read in in Micah. And so we know that God's not going to bring those sins up. The judgment seat of Christ... Is a judgment on uh, how we've lived our life, how we have served the Lord, and if we've been found faithful, we'll be rewarded, and if we've not been found faithful, we won't be rewarded, but we're nonetheless saved because we have received Jesus as our Lord and Savior. Now, after the judgment seat of Christ takes place, we will then begin to experience the marriage of the Lamb or the marriage supper of the Lamb. Now, It's interesting, as we'll study today in Revelation chapter 19, we will see clearly that this marriage, it's a spiritual union between believers and Jesus Christ. He's the groom, we're the bride. We are the bride of Christ. And when we get to heaven, it is as though, spiritually speaking, that union will be consummated and the wedding will take place. And it's going to be a beautiful thing. It's going to be a happy day. and We're going to spend our time today studying about that. Well, I think we could say it this way. The marriage will take the spiritual union between us and Jesus will take place in heaven. But after the marriage... The celebration will continue on earth. Now, next Sunday, when we get to studying the Battle of Armageddon, we're going to see that after the seven years of tribulation on earth, and after we've been in heaven for seven years with Jesus, Jesus will leave heaven, he will come back to the earth, and he will set up his kingdom on earth. For a thousand years. And I'm so very excited about our study of the Battle of Armageddon next Sunday morning. The Bible says when Jesus leaves heaven, we will follow him out of heaven. We too will leave heaven. We will return to this earth. We will be with Jesus as he sets up his millennial kingdom there in Jerusalem. And for a thousand years, I don't want to get ahead of myself, but I have to say some of this now. During this thousand-year period, the Bible says that Satan will be bound in a in chains, and he will be thrown into a bottomless pit. So imagine this, for a thousand years, no devil in the world. It's going to be a beautiful thing. The Antichrist and the false prophet will be thrown into the lake of fire at the end of the battle of Armageddon. Satan then will be cast into a bottomless pit, and here we'll be on the earth, with Jesus and he will be ruling and reigning for a thousand years. It's known as the millennium and we'll get to that in a couple of weeks from now. I'm just kind of trying to give the overview of that. So when Jesus comes back to earth and we come back to earth with him, and he's ruling and reigning. Now, you know, in the Lord's prayer, we pray thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. One day, God's kingdom literally is coming to this earth, and his will will be perfectly done because there'll be no Satan, and there'll be no sin. It'll be a wonderful time. And during those thousand years... Not only will Jesus be ruling and reigning, and we will be ruling and reigning with Jesus, but the celebration of the marriage that will take place in heaven, that celebration will continue on earth. So I think we could say it this way. I think we could say that the marriage of the lamb will take place in heaven, but the reception is going to take place on earth. Or if you wanted to use a more biblical term, the marriage will take place in heaven, but the supper after the marriage, the marriage supper of the lamb, at least much of it, most of it will take place on the earth. Now, I want to give you a scripture verse that backs that up because you shouldn't just take my word for that or anything else. It's what the Bible says. But in Luke chapter 22, Jesus was in the upper room in Jerusalem with his disciples, and they were having the last supper. This was the Thursday night before Jesus was crucified on Friday. It was at the Last Supper that Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper. And he began to explain to those disciples that just as up until this point at the Passover celebration, they remembered how those uh, Passover lambs back in Egypt had been sacrificed and the people had put the blood on the doorpost. And then when the death angel passed over, they were their lives were spared, Jesus begins to explain in pretty clear terms how his blood is about to be shed and his body is about to be broken. And Jesus actually became our Passover lamb. 1 Corinthians 5, 7 talks about that, that Jesus is our Passover lamb. And so during this last supper where he instituted the Lord's Supper, he's explaining to them when he gives them the bread, this is my body which will be broken for you. And as he gives them the, the juice or the wine to drink, he said, this is my blood that is shed for you, this do in remembrance of me. Nonetheless, in Luke 22 and verse 18, Jesus said this, for I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. So Jesus is saying to his disciples, this is the last time that I myself will drink of the fruit of the vine until the Father's kingdom comes. Now, was it when, if it comes, it has to come to where Jesus was. When Jesus was saying that, where was Jesus? He was on the earth. And so, Jesus was saying to his disciples, I'll not be having this meal again until that day when God's kingdom comes on the earth, when my kingdom is established on the earth. And so, that leads me to say that while the marriage of the Lamb will take place in heaven, the marriage supper of the lamb, much of the celebration, the reception, at least much of that and most of that, in fact, will take place on the earth during the millennium. And that's when Jesus will once again, can you imagine what that will be like when Jesus takes of that cup and Jesus looks around and Jesus will say to us, I've not drunk from this cup since I was on the earth the night before my crucifixion. And I said on that night to Peter and Andrew, and I said to James and John and to Matthew and Thomas and to Nathaniel and to the rest of my disciples, I explained to them that I would not drink of this cup until that day when my Father's kingdom is set up on the earth. And Jesus will say, that day has come. That day is now. And now let's drink of this cup together. And let's be reminded of what happened when I died on that cross and I shed my blood for the forgiveness of your sins. And that's why we're all here together because of what I did on that cross. And so what I'm saying is that hasn't happened yet. And that's that part of it is not going to happen on earth because Jesus said to his disciples, I'll not drink of this uh, fruit of this vine until that day when the kingdom comes. And he's talking about when it comes on earth again. And so that said, let's now go to Revelation chapter 19. And let's think specifically about the marriage of the Lamb. Again, spiritually speaking, Jesus is the groom and we're the bride, and uh, we've already been betrothed to Him in a spiritual sense. And in a a real spiritual sense, we're really already one with him. I understand that. But the actual formality of the wedding is yet to take place, and that will take place in heaven. And so what I want us to do in the message, I want us to think about, if you're a note taker, I want to give you three categories today that we're going to be thinking about. First of all, we're going to think about the setting of the wedding. And then we're going to think about the celebration of the wedding And then we're going to think about the bride at the wedding. So those are the three things, the setting, the celebration, and the bride. But let's begin with the setting of this wedding. Revelation chapter 19, look in verse 1. John said, after these things. Now remember, chapter 18 ends the great tribulation. And so he said, after these things, I heard a loud voice of a great multitude. Now watch this, in heaven. And so, as we'll see as we go through this, this multitude, he's talking about angels and he's talking about those of us who have been saved. But notice that he says this is happening in heaven. Say it again the marriage of the Lamb, the formality of it, will take place in heaven. Now, it's interesting. A Jewish wedding, the actual ceremony of the wedding had two phases. Two phases to it. Phase one, or in phase one, the groom would go to the bride's house and he would take the bride out of her house. Now, when a couple knew that the wedding was getting closer, the bride would have known the general timing of the wedding. It wouldn't have, like, she would have known within the next few weeks. Uh, we're, we're going to be getting married. But she wouldn't have known if it was going to be on a Tuesday or a Thursday or a Saturday or a Monday. or She wouldn't have known if the groom would be coming for her in the middle of the night or in the morning or in the middle of the day. She didn't know that. She just knew that they had decided to get married. They were engaged, and the wedding decision had already been made. She also knew that the groom, before the wedding took place, was in the process of preparing uh, the house that they would live in together or the, 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 the room that they would live in. In some cases, if it was an extension of his family's house, uh, he was building onto to that house. If it wasn't connected to his family's house, just their own house, he was preparing that house. So she knew that at some point he was going to come for her. Well, on the appointed day or even on the appointed night, the groom would come to the bride's house and he it's almost like he would kidnap her. He would take her to be with him. And so, there would be a procession. The bridesmaids would be with him. In Matthew chapter 25, we, Jesus told a parable about the, the, the uh, wise virgins and the foolish virgins. Some were ready, some were not ready. Some had oil in their lamps, some did not. That's representative of the bridesmaids. And so, if it was, a not, if it was at night when the groom came to the bride's house... Uh, he would, they would have torches so that they could see. It would, And there would be a procession, a wedding procession from the bride's house to the groom's house. So phase one, the groom came and took the bride out of her house. Phase two, the groom then took the bride to his house. And that's where the wedding ceremony would take place. Now, that, that was a Jewish wedding. Now, when you think about the rapture of the church... When you think about Jesus coming to where we are, that's phase one. Now, we don't know when Jesus is coming in the middle of the night. Tomorrow morning, in the middle of the afternoon, we don't know the exact day or hour, but we know that we're living in that general season. We know about as much as the bride knew in a Jewish wedding. Not the exact time, but the season. And we know that we're living in the last hour, or now, the last minutes of the last hour. So we know that Jesus could come in the morning, at noon, or in the middle of the night. And after he comes for us, what will he do? He will then take us to his house. He will take us to that place that he has prepared for us. And so the Jewish wedding is symbolic of the rapture of the church and Jesus taking us to his house. If you want a scripture verse for that, and you should, in John chapter 14, verses 1 through 3. This is familiar scripture. Notice what Jesus said. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God Believe also in me. Now watch this. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am, there you may be also. What is Jesus doing in heaven right now? Well, several things. But one of the things he's doing, he's preparing that place for you. For us. And at just the right time, just like a Jewish groom would come for his bride, Jesus will come to us to the place where we are, and he will take us to his house, and his house will become our house, and the wedding will take place, and we'll be with him forever and forever. The procession for us will be Jesus and the angels escorting us into the very presence of God. You say, John, what happens if I die before the rapture takes place? What happens if I'm not living when that event happens? Well, when you die as a child of God, Jesus Christ and the angels... Are going to come to that place where you are, in that hospital room, in that nursing home, or in your home. Jesus and the angels will come to where you are, and they will take your soul right out of your body, and they will take you to heaven to be with God. He's going to come to where you are. And so, whether it's at the rapture or whether you die before the rapture, you need to know this. Jesus is coming personally for you. A Jewish groom would not send his best man to get the bride. No. He came personally for the bride. And Jesus is coming personally for us, either in death or or at the rapture. And if it's in death, the angels will be with him. And if it's at the rapture, we'll be caught up in the air immediately. And he's taking us to his house, and we will be with him forever and forever. And so, that is the setting of this wedding. It will take place in heaven. Now, how about the celebration itself? What kind of wedding is it going to be? What will we be experiencing in heaven? Well, let me mention three things there about this, about this wedding. At our wedding uh, in heaven with Jesus, our spiritual union with him, there'll be three things. First, there will be much singing. There will be much light. It will be a very bright place. And number three, there will be much joy and much Gladness. Now, let's think about that. Obviously, the joy and gladness will be there because of how happy uh, we'll all be to be in heaven. So, that's pretty obvious, and even though we'll see that even more in our passage. Turn to Revelation chapter 21. I want to show you how much light there will be in heaven. You know, heaven, when we think about heaven, we always think of brightness and light, and there'll be that in heaven. Revelation chapter 21 and in verse 23, it says, the city, that is the city of heaven, had no need of the sun or of the moon to shine in it, for the glory of God illuminated it. The lamb is its light. And so in heaven, we won't have electricity like we have on earth. Like in this chapel today, it's lit up by all the lights, and it's lit up by the sun that's coming in today. But when we get to heaven, there'll be a different type of light. It'll be a brighter light because it'll be the light that is emanating from the person of Jesus Christ himself. And so heaven will be a bright place. So we're going to have singing. We're going to have bright lights coming from Jesus and from the throne of God, and we're going to have much gladness and there will be much joy. Now, in order for us to fully appreciate those three things, singing, brightness, and joy, We have to go back to the end of chapter 18 in Revelation. Now, we studied this a few weeks ago. But at the end of chapter 18, as the tribulation period is coming to an end, we read, interestingly enough, that those three things, singing, light, and gladness, will be absent from the earth as the tribulation period comes to an end. So think about that. In heaven, much singing, much brightness, much gladness. On earth, no singing, no light, and no gladness. Look at it, chapter 18, verse 22. It says, the sound of harpists, musicians, flutists, and trumpeters shall not be heard in you anymore. No craftsman of any craft shall be found in you anymore. And the sound of a millstone shall not be heard in you anymore. So he's saying there'll be no work on earth at the end of the tribulation. And he's saying again before that, no music, no harpist, no musicians, none of those things. Look in verse 23, the light of a lamp shall not shine in you anymore. And so at the end of the tribulation, all through the tribulation, we we read and studied how the sun is now diminished in brightness. And by the time we come to the end of the tribulation, the sun is not shining anymore. The moon is not giving off any light at night. The stars are not illuminating the night sky anymore. At the end of the tribulation, no sun, no moon, no stars. And here we read, no lights in the city. What we find at the end of the tribulation period, literally, the lights have gone out on the way to hell. The lights have gone out. You see, when Satan comes to us to tempt us and to lure us, what does Satan say? Come with me. Follow me. It's the way of fun. It's the way of light. It's, it's the way of, of pleasure. It's the way of excitement. And many of the cities, even in America today, where sin is so rampant, at night, They have such brightness and such light, and it's a deceptive trick of the devil, because at the end of it all, all those lights are going out. One of the horrible things about hell, as we'll see in a few weeks, will be the darkness of hell. Well, even before people get to hell, there'll be utter darkness on the earth. The lights have gone out on the way to hell. But for those of us in heaven, we've been spared the tribulation. We're in heaven. So what are we experiencing? In all ways, we're experiencing the opposite of what is happening on earth. We'll be experiencing much singing, the brightness of those uh, lights in heaven coming from Jesus. And we'll be experiencing gladness and joy. Now, I want us to focus just for a moment uh, on the singing. What kind of singing is going to take place in heaven? Well, look in verse number one of chapter 19, because the singing starts out with this word, Alleluia. Now, as we read through these next several verses, you're going to notice that this word, Alleluia, appears four times in this passage of Scripture. Interestingly enough, this is the only four times we read this word in the entire New Testament. Hallelujah. Four times in the New Testament, all four times coming in the first half of Revelation chapter 19. The word hallelujah is a transliteration of a Hebrew word that literally means praise God. The Hebrew word halel, H A L E L, from which we get our word hallelujah. It means praise. And then notice at the end of the word hallelujah. It's 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 an abbreviated form of God's name, of Yahweh, and so it is God. So Alleluia or in some places in the Bible, Hallelujah literally means praise God. So the song, it's the doxology. It's the heaven's heavens version of the doxology, and we'll be praising God. And we'll be praising God in heaven for five things. And I want you to notice these. First of all, we'll be praising God for his salvation. Look in verse 1. Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and honor and power belong to the Lord our God. Friend, the first thing you should thank God for every day is that you're saved. That your sins are forgiven, that your name is in the Lamb's book of life, and that heaven is your home. I'm thankful to be saved. I'm more thankful that I'm saved than anything in the world. And I'm also thankful that I know that I'm saved. And when we get to heaven, that's the first thing that we'll be praising God for. Hallelujah! Praise God that we're saved. And then we're going to thank God when we get to heaven for his judgments on the earth. Look at verse 2. For true and righteous are his judgments, because he has judged the great harlot, that's talking about the spirit, the, the world that Antichrist will be running on the earth during the tribulation, who corrupted the earth with her fornication, and he has avenged on her the blood of his servants shed by her. When we get to heaven, we're going to thank God that his judgments are just and right, and that he has dealt with sin. And the third thing we're going to be thanking God for is that evil is ended. No more evil. Not only has God judged sin, but by this point, God will have brought an end to evil. Look in verse number three. And again, they said, alleluia, praise God. Her smoke rises up forever and ever. And so the smoke of God, God has brought an end, the, the tribulation is over, the rebellion on earth has ended at this point. And we thank God, look, even now, looking forward to that day, that evil will one day be brought to an end. And then they're going to be, or we're going to be praising God for his sovereignty. Look in verse 4. And the 24 elders, now they represent those of us who've been saved. We studied that earlier on. And the four living creatures, these are four special angelic beings, probably cherubim who are around the throne of God, fell down and worshiped God who sat on the throne saying, Amen, here it is again, Alleluia. Then a voice came from the throne saying, Praise our God, all you His servants, and those who fear Him, both small and great. And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude as the sound of many waters and as the sound of mighty thunderings saying, Hallelujah. Now watch this. For the Lord God omnipotent reigns. That word reigns. We get our word sovereignty from the word reigns. The word reign is the root word of the word sovereign. And so when we say God is sovereign, we say God is reigning. God is in control. And when we get to heaven, one of the things we'll praise God for is that he is in control and he does reign. But friend, you don't have to wait till you get to heaven to praise God for that. You can praise God now that even during this pandemic, even with whatever is going on in your life, even with everything affecting the world, that God is on his throne. God has not abdicated his throne, and God is very much in control of what is happening. I find great peace. It's one of the anchors of my daily faith. Whatever happens, God is in control. We're not at the mercy of circumstances. We're not at the mercy of other people, and we're not even at the mercy of the devil. Friend, we're at the mercy of God Who is totally in control of everything about our lives. And then, fifthly, we're going to be praising God for our union with Jesus Christ. Look in verse 7. Let us be glad and rejoice and give Him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and His wife has made herself ready. And so, when we're praising God in heaven, we're going to be praising Him for our union with Jesus. But we can praise Him for that now. Now, one day we'll have Jesus in the flesh we'll be able to see Jesus with our eyes but for now we have him in our hearts and we have him in our spirits and we walk by faith and we trust him and we can praise him God I thank you that you're with me and what I'm going through and so heaven is going to be a place of much brightness much gladness and as we've seen here much singing Hallelujah. Praise God for all these things. Now, how about the bride? I've already said that we are the bride of Christ. But what are we going to be looking like? Or what what are some characteristics of the bride? Well, first of all, notice that the bride is prepared for the wedding. Preparation was made in advance. Again, look in verse 7 at the very end of it. And his wife has made herself ready. How do we make ourselves ready for this wedding? By confessing our sins, repenting of our sins, asking God to forgive us of our sins, asking Jesus to come into our heart, and trusting him to save us. That's how you get ready for the wedding. You get saved. And so, obviously, those of us in heaven have been saved. We're prepared. But notice in verse 8, not only are we prepared, but we as the bride of Christ will be appropriately dressed. You know, even on weddings on earth, one of the major issues there is the bride's dress. Thousands of dollars are spent, and many hours and months are even spent. Girls are trying to find the perfect dress that they can wear on their special day. Well, you know, Jesus doesn't leave anything left out. He's going to have us dressed perfectly. Now, look in verse 8, how we'll be dressed. And to her, that is the bride of Christ, that's us, it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. And so, our wedding robe, as it were, will be bright, it will be white, it will be fine, it will be linen, but it will be, to a large extent, dependent upon our faithful service of God. On this earth. So there is a sense in which even now we are in the process of making our own robe. What we'll be wearing in heaven, we have a part in making that. That's why I said at the beginning that the judgment seat of Christ will take place before the marriage of the Lamb. At the judgment seat of Christ, we'll be given crowns to wear but also we'll be given a robe to wear and the crowns and the robe will be dependent upon our faithful servant of Christ. I could say it this way. Our good works don't take us to heaven. No, we go to heaven by the grace of God, but our good works will follow us to heaven. And so don't get to thinking, hey, since I'm saved by the grace of God, does it matter how I live? Yes, it does, because your rewards in heaven have everything to do with how you've lived your life or sought to live your life on the earth. Our good works don't take us to heaven, but they follow us to heaven. And in response and in reward of our good works, Jesus will clothe us with a robe that will be appropriate for us. So most likely everybody's robe is going to be a little bit different based on how we have lived our lives. Now, if we were in church today and we've just talked about the setting of the wedding, it's in heaven. The celebration of the wedding, singing, brightness, gladness, and joy. The bride at the wedding, she's a uh, prepared and she's appropriately dressed. Now, as we prepare to come to the conclusion, I would say, if you're still listening, say amen. And hopefully you can say amen. Hopefully you're still listening because I want us to close with this question. How should our future wedding affect us now? In other words, we know that in our future, there's a wedding. Now, we may not be thinking about that, uh, some of you have been married. Uh, my dad just recognized John and Elaine Fournette. They've been married 60 years. As, as they think about their wedding, they're thinking about something that happened 60 years in the past. And yet, even for the two of them, in their future, there is a wedding. For every one of us who have been saved, whether we're single or married, there is in our future a wedding in heaven with Jesus, a spiritual union. That's one of the things that awaits us. And so, here's the question. How should, that, how should that future wedding affect us now? Well, first of all, it should give us joy now. It should give us joy. Look down in verse number 9. Because then he said to me, that is the angel who's giving this vision to John, or showing John around heaven. He said, right. Blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb, And he said to me, these are the true sayings of God. And so when John had this vision of this marriage supper, this marriage taking place in heaven, he said, blessed is everybody who is invited to this. That word blessed means happy. And so we have been invited to the marriage of the lamb. We are the bride. He has proposed to us. We have accepted his invitation. We're already united with Jesus. And one day that will be formalized in heaven, but it should give us great joy now. To know that Jesus is already ours. He's living in our heart. The Holy Spirit is the down payment. And one of these days, there will be a physical, visible, spiritual union in heaven with Jesus. And knowing that should bring us great happiness and great joy now. You know, even on earth, but here you have a bride and a groom and they're engaged and they're planning on getting married six months in advance. But you know, even before the wedding takes place, the bride and the groom are happy because they're in love. And they're thinking, I'm going to spend the rest of my life with each other. I was thinking this morning before I left the house about what I was talking about, the marriage of the lamb and weddings and what happy celebrations they are. And, and I was thinking about a wedding that we had here in the chapel. In fact, it's been the last wedding we've had in the chapel. It took place about a month ago. My dad and I had the privilege of officiating that wedding together. It was Nicholas Josie and Micah Southard got married right here in the chapel. It was one of the happiest weddings that either one of us have ever been part of. And several times since then, we've talked about that, and we said, when's the last time we've been in a wedding that was that happy? I mean, they're all happy, but that just seemed on that day to be unusually happy. The people, both, both of them, their families... Their parents, grandparents, friends, everybody was just so excited. In fact, during the ceremony, Micah, the bride, she was so happy, I didn't think she was going to make it through the ceremony. And I wanted to say, Micah, I've known Nicholas most of his life. He's a great guy, but he ain't that great. You don't need to be that happy. But really, he is a great guy, and she should have been that happy. But you know what my point is, when a bride and a groom are fixing to get married, just the anticipation of being married makes them happy, and makes them joyful. And they're marrying imperfect people. Think about that. But for those of us who are saved, we have a wedding in our future. The date's already been set. We don't know when it is, but Jesus knows when it is. And we are getting together with a perfect spiritual groom. And even today, I already had my sermon finished But before I left the house. I got thinking about Jesus and what's going to make him such a great person to spend eternity with contrast Jesus to every bride and every groom today. First of all, Jesus is always with us. Now, Nicholas and Micah are happy to be married, but they can't always be with each other. He has a job. She has a job. So during the day, they have to go in different directions. That's true of every bride and groom, every husband and wife. But when we get to heaven, and even now, Jesus said, I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. Tell you something else about Jesus makes him a great spiritual spouse, and that is he's always the same. Jesus is always the same. He's never in a a bad mood, always the same. Something else about Jesus, he never holds a grudge, never. Tell you something else about Jesus, he only has our best interest at heart and in mind. He's, He's wanting to do what is best for us. And I'll tell you something else, Jesus Christ has the power to solve every problem. Now, you tell me on this earth who you could marry that meets those qualifications. Always with us, always the same, never holds a grudge, only has your best interest in mind, and has the power to solve every problem. Nobody on earth can do that. No spouse, no bride, no groom, no husband, no wife. Nobody could live up to that. Only Jesus can. And so that's why I'm saying as we anticipate our spiritual wedding with Jesus we will be formally married, spiritually married to the one who can do all those things and so much more. And so knowing that's in our future should give us great joy now. And I'll tell you something else it should do. It should keep us focused on Jesus, no matter what we're going through in life. Look in verse number 10, Uh, back in chapter 19 now, and in verse number 10, John has had this vision. He's seen this sight in heaven, this wedding, the brightness, the singing. He's heard all of this, and the scene, he's witnessed the joy and gladness. He said, blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Look in verse 10. I fell at his feet, that is the feet of the angel, to worship him, But he said to me, see that you do not do that. In other words, the angel said, don't worship me. You're going to get us both in trouble. Don't do that. I am your fellow servant and of your brethren who have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. What was that angel saying? That angel was saying, hey, look. I know I've shown, this has been an amazing thing we've just witnessed, but don't worship me. Don't focus on me. Worship God. Focus on Jesus. He is the one that you should uh, devote your worship to and that your heart should be permanently set upon. And folks, that's true for us. Knowing that we have a wedding in heaven with Jesus one day should cause us to love him more and get to know him better. So that when we, listen, so that one day in heaven, we will see face to face the one we have known all these years, heart to heart. And so we focus on Jesus. We look forward to the future and we focus on Jesus right now. The one who even now is always with us. He's always the same. He never holds a grudge. When he forgives our sins, he never brings it up again. He has our best interest at heart. He's always doing what is best for us and only allowing into our lives what would ultimately be good for us. And he has the power to solve every problem and to see us through everything we face in life. You know, as I think about the marriage of the lamb that will take place in heaven, the marriage supper of the lamb that will begin in heaven and continue on earth for a thousand years, I've only got one question left for you this morning. Are you ready for that event? Are you ready for that day? If the rapture of the church took place today or if the rapture of the church took place tonight in the middle of the night or early tomorrow morning and Jesus came back to the place where we are, do you know beyond the shadow of any doubt that he would take you to be with him so that where he is, there you may be also? Or would you say, you know, John, I'm not sure about that. I think there's a chance that I might be left behind and be forced to endure The seven years of tribulation on the earth. Friend, if you're not sure that you're saved, with our heads bowed and eyes closed right now, I want to give you a chance to come into relationship with Jesus Christ. And that all happens through prayer and through faith. If you will ask Jesus to come into your heart to forgive your sins and to save you, he will do that. And one of these days when the rapture takes place or when you die, he will come to where you are and take you to be with him in his house forever and forever. Pray this prayer. Wherever you may be listening from today, pray this prayer. Say, dear Jesus, I want to be ready. I want to be prepared for the marriage of the Lamb. And God, I'm not sure that I am. And so I ask you right now to come into my heart, forgive my sins, and make me a Christian. I ask you to save me, and I trust you to do it. I trust you, Jesus. I receive you by faith, and by doing that, I am now prepared for that great wedding that will one day take place in heaven. Now, God, help me, and the rest of us should all pray this part. God, help me to live the rest of my life on earth, doing everything I can to serve you faithfully so that when I get to heaven, my robe will be long. My robe will be thick. My robe will be flowing. My robe will be beautiful. And so that even through the robe that I'll wear through all eternity, I can bring honor and glory to your name. And it's in that precious name of Jesus that we pray. And all the people said, amen and amen.